This is Paul Eckert with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we'll be looking each week at some of the key stories in the region as covered by RFA. I'm joined by Matt Pennington, who heads up RFA's Southeast Asian Services. How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing well, Paul. Thank you very much. Matt will bring us up to date on rare but increasing defections from Myanmar's powerful military as it wages war on the rest of society following a coup on February 1st. And I'll be looking at the cautious reopening of North Korea's border with China after it was sealed off since January 2020 to combat coronavirus, a closure that caused tremendous economic pain to already poor North Koreans. Thanks, Paul. So to Myanmar where the military is still digging in its heels despite outrage at home and abroad over its conduct. The death toll from its violent suppression of protests against the military coup launched three months ago has climbed past 750. That's according to the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners, which keeps a tally of deaths and arrests. As with a lot of organizations that the junta disagrees with for speaking the unfortunate truth, the AAPP has just been outlawed. But our focus this week is something much less predictable, defections in the ranks of the military itself. In the past week or so, RFA Burmese service has interviewed three military officers who abandoned their posts in protest at the coup. I'm joined by RFA Burmese senior editor Jo Min Tun to talk about this development which is likely to be causing dismay in the upper echelons of the Tatmadaw, which during decades of abusive conduct has always managed to close ranks, even in the face of popular uprisings. Welcome, Joel Minton. Hi, Matt. Thank you very much for having me again. Thanks for being here. So first of all, let's talk about the officers we interviewed. I think the first was Major Hain To'u from the 99th Light Infantry Battalion. Isn't he the highest ranking defector to date? I mean, can you tell me a bit about him? Yes, he is the highest ranking defector so far we know. In the interview, he said he left because the military institution is so corrupt that he could no longer serve in the corrupt system. In the military, he said high rank officers oppressed the low rank staff and the upright men will not be promoted. The high-ranking officers were given all kinds of opportunities to get involved in corruptions. But the low-rank soldiers were starving or barely surviving. In, in the military, the traditionally junior officers' families were closely controlled by that of senior officers. They have to serve their commanding officers' families as housemates or servicemen. If someone want to quit or resign, his family will have to face risks. In short, it is rare to see any senior military officers defection or quitting the service in Myanmar. Okay, so this major basically laid all that out. Why the economic reasons and the fears for family that sort of dissuade most people from defecting. But it's very significant that he's actually speaking out. Now, another interviewee was from the Kapasa, the Defense Products Industries. Why did he defect? The main reason he defected was, he's, according to the interview, he was more political. He said he defected because the military he was serving should protect the country and the people. But in reality, it was arresting, torturing, killing civilians for no reason. So he decided to defect to pro-democracy movement. 
uh, he is different with the uh, major Hainto. He's more open about political ideas. He has more uh, wide open view on the outside the barracks. Okay. I mean, did the major actually say that he was going to join the pro democracy movement or not? He didn't say clearly. He already on the um, other side already. So I think he is among the pro democracy protesters, at least in the border area, not in the towns or city. Right. Okay. But this this gentleman from the defense products industries, he was more overtly political. Yes. Okay. Now we also said some interesting things about the Burmese defense industry, and he mentioned some foreign suppliers and things like that. Can you fill us in on that? Yeah, it's interesting because it is rarely public things about that. It is very secret in Burma. Even someone who carried that kind of information can be uh, charged with the state secret acts. It is very rare to hear the kind of, you know, how they are functioning inside the military equipment and weapon factories. In the interview, he said Myanmar military equipment and weapons uh, factories were running with raw material supplies from China via Singapore. He also mentioned that the factory department compass uh, was supplied uh, with spare parts by German ammunition manufacturer Fritz Warner. So these things, no ordinary people have any idea of it. And I think it's also significant that he mentions a, a Western defense manufacturer because obviously Myanmar faced an arms embargo from most Western nations for a long period. I mean, that dates back to the previous junta, and I think most countries didn't actually lift those the arms embargo even when the democratic reforms were, were happening in recent years. So the fact that he mentions a particular German company is, is significant. Now, he also said a little bit about the weapons they were using on the streets against protesters. Yes, he said the uh, type of assault rifles used by the um, troops on protester and also the troops have been carrying RPGs that we saw in Yangon and some of the uh, major cities where the uh, protesters are blockading the uh, streets in order to defend the protests from the uh, violence crackdowns. So he confirmed about those things in the interview too even though the uh, senior military officer, including coup leader, senior general mayor line, in a public speech, he said the troops are not using the actual weapons or uh, actual bullets or something like that. But this guy confirmed they use the assault rifles on the protest, also RPGs. So RPGs being rocket-propelled grenades. I mean, and I think this officer said that he'd seen troops have been carrying these weapons, but he couldn't actually confirm that they've been used, but he said if they're carrying them, then it means that they're going to use them. So there was one other interview, which I think was with uh, one of two officers who defected from the 431st Light Infantry Battalion in Kotong, which is in the extreme south of Myanmar. What did he have to say? Yeah, interesting thing from him was his answers, a more humane view on the civilians. He said he defended because he saw people overwhelmingly opposing the uh, coup, and also he did not agree with the military leadership on violence against the civilians. And in his view, in his experience, about 80% of the servicemen in Myanmar army are not happy. They want to leave, 
but they cannot do so for many reasons, including uh, family ties or the security. Someone want to get out, but there's a family pressure, security pressure, those things. It sounded like servicemen think it's too risky to leave because their families could face repercussions. So what kind of response have these interviews gotten from people inside Myanmar? I mean, first of all, from the protest movement. So far, the people hardly welcome them as a true patriot who joined with the uh, people. But it was hard to hear something from tightly controlled community like military. We heard that the military leadership was trying to prevent further defection from the high rank officers by giving them extra opportunities and extraordinary favors that they and their families will be happy in the service. Uh, they also use increased propaganda to see the protesters and Brella government uh, as uh, criminals and unpatriotic lawbreakers. So they they trying to do lots of things in order to prevent any further defection. So far from the people, uh, ordinary people, they they welcome the move, and this is a sign that they're gonna be even though very tiny amount of people. I mean defections. They feel uh, there's a good people inside the military that want to come out. Okay, so there's been no formal reaction from the junta to these interviews, I take it? So far, no. Okay, but it's very interesting because I think this shows that there are some cracks in the edifice of the Tatmadaw and its control over the people in its ranks. So how significant do you think these defections are? I mean, are they isolated incidents, or do you think this could pose a deeper problem for the military leadership? It is somewhat significant that these officers defending to the pro-democracy movement, giving out everything they had, um, especially for high-ranking officers. But I don't think this posed a big problem to the military leadership. There are many times in the past, such as in 1949, after independence, when communist wings or officers defeated by regiment or battalions. In 1958, during caretaker government. In 1962, military coup. In 1988, pro-democracy protests. In 2007, Saffron Revolution. They have this kind of defections in the past. But all those incidents, nothing was more powerful than mass defections to communist rebels in 1949. So again, in 2021, it was something not to a level that could pose a problem for the military leaders and NAPDO. They have many, many senior uh, military officers and higher rank. They're producing cadets every year. They, they don't pose any threat by defection until they are really high, like Lieutenant a, a Major General or Lieutenant General, those kind of rank. They are very deep inside their, their institution. They have deeper knowledge to their internal relation, personal relation among their uh, leadership, and also secrets too. Okay, so we haven't seen a top level defector yet. The military is likely to be a little bit concerned about this, but as you say, history shows that they've taken defections during popular uprisings in their stride before, so that could happen again, but we'll see. Jormin Tun, thank you so much for your time in explaining to us about RFA's exclusive reporting on military defections in Myanmar. Thank you very much, Matt. I'm glad to be here too. Thanks. Thanks.
thanks, Matt and Tommy Toon. Now, North Korea has been called a modern-day hermit kingdom for its reclusive stance in world affairs and its closed society. But its 850-mile-long border with China was never hermetically sealed, as regime-sustaining trade and smuggling has taken place for years, despite UN sanctions. With the onslaught of the coronavirus in early 2020, however, North Korea and China closed their frontier, and immediately North Koreans started feeling the pinch as their source of food and money-making opportunities dried up. Now, after 14 months, there are signs the border is open to at least a limited official trade and officially sanctioned smuggling. To get a sense of what's going on in that corner of the world, we're going to talk with Eugene Huang of RFA's English service. Eugene is in his third year of, with us specializing in North Korea watching. How are you doing today, Eugene? Oh, I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks for making time for us. I know how busy you are. We're talking about the North Korean border opening to China, and most of us have uh, thought of that border as rather porous, knowing that refugees come and go, some of them forever, leaving North Korea forever, others coming, buying medicine or earning money and going back. But just how dramatic was that border shutdown uh, a year or so ago? Yeah, well, the shutdown happened at the very beginning of the pandemic because uh, I guess the North Korean leadership was very serious about not wanting the virus to reach them there in Pyongyang. But since the shutdown, the authorities have had to put ever-increasing deterrence to make people stay away. So smugglers who would cross the border to get into China, they would either have the border guard on their payroll or they would themselves be the border guard. So the first thing North Korea did was to send the special forces uh, to watch over the border guards to make sure they aren't doing anything shady. And then after that, the military began laying landmines along some of the more heavily traveled crossing points. You know, landmines are very common along the border with South Korea, but this would be the first time that landmines had been deployed on the Chinese border and intended to keep North Korea's own citizens from escaping rather than a foreign army from, you know, coming in. Um, later the, after that, they established a one-kilometer kill zone along the entirety of the border, and they said that anyone found inside that zone would be shot on sight, regardless of their reason being there. And finally, they deployed anti-aircraft guns along some parts of the border, again, to stop these illegal border crossers. We can assume that the harsher deterrents were because people were continuing to cross the border, even though it was closed, though. Did they end up shooting anybody, do you know? I don't recall any stories about them shooting people, but they did execute people trying to smuggle things in and out of North Korea. There were official executions, but I don't know if the aircraft, anti-aircraft guns were used against anybody. Well, let's hope not. Uh, North Korean lives are tough enough without that. But why was that border so important to North Korea? And are we talking smuggling or normal trade? And wasn't much trade already shut off by UN sanctions and the like? Well, it's hard to make a distinction between smuggling and quote-unquote normal trade because smuggling is the norm. Uh, North Korea isn't allowed to import certain items due to U.S. and U.N. sanctions, so a lot of the effort goes into finding ways to get those kinds of items that are restricted across the border. Additionally, uh, there are small-time smugglers who either, with the help of Chinese business partners or by crossing the border themselves, they can, they can buy a lot of Chinese goods, sneak them across the border into North Korea and sell them at mar a markup. To, to North Korean customers. But of course, there is actually legal trade that goes on. But so much of North Korea's economy depends on smuggling of one kind or another. And uh, people in North Korea are paid a government salary that uh, you know each month amounts to about $5 a month, which isn't enough to live on. I mean, I think I've seen some things that have said maybe two packs of cigarettes costs about $5. So that's not even enough to get through a week, I would think. 
So a lot of people support themselves by either smuggling goods from China or buying and selling those goods once they are inside North Korea. So with that border closed, commerce in entire towns has dried up, and that's because these goods were not flowing in. Sure. Well, you've written a lot about the hardships suffered by North Korea, particularly from these measures on the border, as opposed to the long-term hardships and human rights problems, which are part of the North Korean story. But can you give us a sense today of the type of people who were affected by the border closure? Were they high-ranking officials or just ordinary households or these petty smugglers that you were talking about? I think it's fair to say that everyone was affected one way or another. Um, North Korea suffers from a food shortage, and aid and imports from China was always the solution to that. The rich people who live in Pyongyang, who are relatively privileged, of course, they were affected, of course, because foreign items, or certain foreign food items that completely disappeared from Pyongyang's grocery stores. And that doesn't sound like a terrible sacrifice by them, but you know, it's at least evidence that it was affecting them in some way. But in general, the border closure hurts those people who were most connected with cross-border trade the most. And that includes all the poorest people because food prices skyrocketed after food from China wasn't coming in. So as far as high-ranking and connected officials being affected, though, there are cases of these people being themselves involved in smuggling and being caught. One particular story that we did was during the summer, there was a spike in gold prices and several smugglers were caught. They were trying to move the gold and platinum into China, and these are precious metals that are controlled by the central government. So that means that someone there was likely in on it. And if that person is caught, well, we can say it would definitely affect them. Sure, sure. That's where we heard about the executions, if I'm not wrong. Now, how bad did it get for the North Korean economy and the people there? Okay, so again, the food situation got to be pretty bad. So the UN Special Rapporteur on human rights, on the human rights situation in North Korea, uh, he even warned that North Korea could suffer a food crisis if the border remains closed. And RFA also reported that the authorities were telling the people to prepare for another arduous march, which is what they call the 1990s famine. And that famine was really severe. Uh, it killed off millions of people. And some people say that it's as much as 10% of the country by their estimates. Um, so certain sources in RFA reports had said that uh, people often didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. But it has not yet gotten as bad as it was during the arduous march, as far as outside observers can tell. Sure. I would think that more people would just make the desperate run for China if that were the case. Right. So now the border is sort of creaking open in some fashion. What sort of opening have we seen so far and what lies ahead as far as you can see? And how did RFA learn about all these things in such a closed country? Right. Well, um, trains carrying Chinese corn have crossed the border into North Korea in, in the form of food aid. And also, North Korea has built a new rail line between Shiniju and another city that's close by called Uiju. So it could first process Chinese freight before sending it down to Pyongyang, which is where the freight is normally sent. So that's an indication that the border will open soon. And RFA's Korean service was able to learn about this by talking to people in China who saw the train depart. And maybe they worked in the railroad industry in Dandong, which is the city that lies across the Yellow River from Shiniju. I have peered across that Yellow River more than once and looking into the city of North. That's how you kind of get your first look at North Korea for most cases. And uh, I'll just close by asking, have you ever yourself been able to visit North Korea? 
Well, I visited through the uh, JSA, uh, which is the Joint Security Area on the DMZ in Panmunjom. So yes, okay. technically I have been into North Korea, but not officially, I guess. Okay, well, thanks for making time for us again, Eugene, and we hope to talk again when spring comes and more things are known about the situation on the North Korean border or other aspects of North Korean life and affairs. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Eugene and Paul, for helping us peer across the China-North Korea border. Shutting down North Korea's gateway to the outside world showed that the Kim regime was deadly serious about preventing the spread of COVID. What we don't know, I suppose, Paul, is whether the cure is worse than the disease. Indeed, Matt. In many ways, we are still only guessing at the calculations of a ruling family that many would say cares as little about the welfare of its people as the military regime in Myanmar appears to. Yeah, that seems fair enough to say. Please join us again next week for another sampling of RFA's coverage. Until then, you can visit our website, rfa.org. Our past podcasts are at that site or other platforms like Spotify and iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Asia. If you have any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. Our email is eoa at rfa.org. Not VOA, but EOA. It stands for Eyes on Asia. I'm Paul Eckert with Radio Free Asia with Matt Pennington. This podcast series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again. 